But if you try sometimes Oh, you might find work at prn.fm every monday at 10 a.m and on your prn app for android and apple that's 10 a.m eastern time check where you are since we're global and you can catch all of our back shows including this one later today in our archive at visionaries.podbean.com so uh wanted to talk today about the culture wars, but I don't know if I should. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, years, some years ago, I was on the academic senate where I teach, and something was going on, and, and uh, I said, I find this situation intimidating. And one of my senate colleagues said, John, I find it hard to believe you're intimidated by anything. But, um, you know, these days you have to be careful, particularly in academia. And all these shows are being recorded and put online. So when the cultural revolution comes, they can go find them, and I can get interrogated about them, right? But maybe not because, uh, you know, one of my concerns is our digital world is there going to be anything left of it? Uh, I, <laughs> it starts with, I have a, uh, a banker's box full of you know, a dozen or so old hard disks. You know, you had to keep buying them in the old days because they came in uh, uh, megabytes rather than gigabytes or terabytes. And they'd fill up. <laughs> so now, uh, I mean, of course, it, it a technical service could do it, but I can't attach those hard disks to anything I have because they don't have USB connections. They have some type of cables with lots of pins, which my computer doesn't take. So uh, one example, and you know, the Library of Congress uh, is concerned about this. We hear them talk about it occasionally on C-SPAN, but we're, um, uh, you know, they talk about, what is it, every year we accumulate more digital information than the whole previous history of the world and all that. But how secure is it? So some years ago, about the school I went to, it's a quite an important uh, architecture school in mid-20th century. And um, I did uh, a book about it, for which I interviewed all the key professors, uh, uh, most of whom were still alive. And I have all those tapes. We, you know, we just clicked a little uh, Sony TR-55, which that doesn't work because <laughs> the uh, had a little rubber uh, fan belt sort of, uh, that would, would, the motor would turn the cassette, and that gets hard and uh, crumbles. And... If you put TR-55 in Google, it doesn't even find that tape recorder. Um, so I don't know how to get a replacement for it. But I have the cassettes, and uh, I must have a dozen cassette players around the house, whether they're boomboxes or Walkman or whatever, that can play those cassettes. But then I had a uh, an incredible classmate 
uh, Robin, who became a major figure around Philadelphia and where I went to school. And, and when he died, it was a memorial service. I made a point of bringing my little uh, digital recorded recorder, and I recorded it. And I was careful enough to uh, down, you know, download the file to my computer du jour. <laughs> I think it was a, a Windows computer, one of the horrible periods of my life when uh, the, I was buddies with the guy running the computer department, and he gave me a, it was time to upgrade. You know, my Mac wasn't handling things anymore. And so I, uh, I'm back to Macs. But for about five years, I had this uh, Windows machine, and so I put it on there, and I probably moved it to one of my Macs when I moved to Mac, but now it's gone. And it's probably on one of those hard disks that's in a box, you know, which I'm going to throw away at some point because uh, I'm not going to spend the money for <laughs> some high-priced service to recover the files. There's nothing I need there, although I would like to have this particular file. Anyway, uh, when the Cultural Revolution comes and uh, they start digging up all my old stuff, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of my father. My father uh, was in the New Deal, and he came to eventually run the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission. And then it was time to leave, and we... Uh, we moved from Washington to Long Island, and I was in uh, fourth grade, maybe. <laughs> so they, my parents didn't explain to me a lot of what we were doing, but part of it was what uh, people did in those days. You work for the, or still to this day, you work for the government for whatever it may be, five, ten years, and then you go into private industry and, pardon the expression, cash in on your experience. And my father became an a uh, 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 attorney for a financial firm. and uh, But one of the reasons he had to leave, and it was just when McCarthyism was starting to heat up and uh, Jim Dines, the House on Un-American Activities Committee. And so apparently they were after my father. <laughs> when he was at City College, apparently he wrote the Why I Am a Communist column for the City College newspaper. And he says, well, well, yeah, but I also wrote the why I am a socialist, why I am a capitalist, and why I am a fascist columns. <laughs> he was quite illiterate and quite facile with, with writing. So uh, uh, at some point, uh, if this show is recorded and preserved, maybe it'll be coming after me. But anyway, I'm thinking about the culture wars then and now. So, really, in a modern iteration, culture wars begin um, 1987 with the uh, publication of two books, coincidentally, coming out in the same year. And one of them is Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind, and the other is E.D. Hirsch, Cultural Literacy. And <clears throat> let's do the easier one first. Hirsch's book was quite reasonable. Um, it was, well, you know, we keep hearing that college 
is not teaching any factual material. <laughs> you know, uh, Jay Leno, among others, would <clears throat> go out onto the sidewalk outside the studio and ask people, uh, you know, when was the Civil War? You know, who's the vice president? Who's the president? And uh, that these uh, blithering idiot younger people <laughs> had no idea. Uh, and, of course, they're all, you know, he checked that they're college educated. So uh, now, of course, maybe he was editing the ones who did know, don't get on TV. But in any case, education's argument was, well, uh, what's important is critical thinking. Now, Hirsch's point is you can't think critically unless you have something to think critically about. <laughs> and uh, critical thinking, what they were, what they to this day, we call critical thinking in, in college is really indoctrinating kids to political correctness. So, uh, but, so Hirsch makes that point, and he said, "This is what you ought to know." And it's a pretty dense book. It's been a long time since I've looked at it, probably since 1987. But um, one of the criticisms that may be valid, I don't know, because it's been a long time, is uh, is it biased toward Western European uh, cultural material? And if that's the case, you know, yeah, we should, we should uh, be doing better. And in fact, we are. Um, I teach a survey course in art and architectural history and um you know so okay what textbook to use and the standard textbook for uh decades has been jansen so it's <clears throat> uh, i think it's a history of art and um but we usually just call these textbooks by their authors jansen and it's a history of western art well i don't use Jensen. I use Stockstad. And it has the same publisher. These are mega industries. Imagine I've got uh, 100 plus students, and I'll have to buy a $200 book. <laughs> and there's a thousand schools using this book. Uh, so this is a big business. But it's quickly changing or fading because of digital and online. But Anyway, Stockstad is just like Chance and same publisher, same illustrations, but includes non-Western. So there's uh, uh, major sections on Africa, Asia, and pre-Columbian America. And uh, great. Uh, you know, uh, we were covering, I and my colleagues are covering this material uh, quite some time ago. And of course, you know, Stonehenge was always there, for example. But as important as Stonehenge is um, uh, Newgrange Passage Mount, 3000 B.C., uh, basically the plan of a Gothic cathedral. So this, uh, this archetype of the uh, Gothic cathedral is there in this uh, prehistoric or Neolithic structure, um, couple thousand, like 4,000 years before the Gothic cathedrals. Well, it's interesting. It was just watching this material that we we were very attached to and would have Xeroxes of, and of course, outline, start to show up in the textbooks. And so 
I, you, you can't make that complaint, you know, that we're ignoring other cultures. Uh, if you look at Stockstead, it, it's rich with this material. And also uh, really uh, tries to deal with the issue of women uh, in all of the arts and in um, you know, classical Western painting. So anyway, uh, Hirsch's book is a lot of fun testing yourself. I know that. <laughs> and then he started a series of, um, from kindergarten through sixth grade, of what your kids should know in school. And a lot of homeschoolers use that series, and some schools use it. And a lot of parents use it to uh, supplement what their kids are getting in, uh, in school. So that's Hirsch. And uh, uh, in a disgusting sense, he was attacked for uh, being reasonable. Now, at the same time, Alan Bloom's book came out. And let me just get my Wikipedia print out here to get the subtitle. The Closing of the American Mind, How Higher Education Has Failed Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students. And since I'm looking at Wikipedia, a 1987 book by the philosopher Alan Bloom, Alan Bloom, A L A N B L O O M, as opposed to the other Bloom. What's his name? Anyway, there's another Bloom in academia, in which the author criticizes the openness of relativism in academia and society in general as leading paradoxically to a great closing referenced in the book's subtitle. In Bloom's view, openness and absolute understanding undermine critical thinking and eliminate the point of view that defines cultures. So his point's a bit subtle, but um, it's an attack on Nietzsche. And I really appreciate the book. I mean, I totally disagree with a lot of it. But it's one of the best descriptions of Nietzsche I've seen. So that's really cool, even though he's being critical, taking the con rather than the pro. uh, I think it's an excellent description of Nietzsche. And uh, two of Nietzsche's major points, uh, one of them is uh, he calls it perspectivism. Is it perspectivism or perspectivalism? Anyway, perspectivism, which is how things look depends upon your point of view. Uh, There is no absolute, you know, it's Rashomon all the way down. (laughs) It's turtles all the way down, right? Uh, uh, So Rashomon is a famous movie where uh, a, uh, you know, I don't think I ever saw it, but uh, a bunch of people are, as I understand it, if I thought I was going to talk about this, I would have printed out the Wikipedia article. Uh, a, a bunch of people are at a, you know, a, a rope suspension bridge. It collapses. They all die. And how did they get there? And what were the perspectives? Uh, what were the points of view? Uh, now, I'm confusing that with another movie. Rashomon is, anyway, that what happened is uh, the different points of view about what happened. And I think that's certainly true. 
And um, another key position of Nietzsche's is genealogy of morals, that um, good and bad, good and evil are, I think one of his books is called Beyond Good and Evil, is, uh, depends upon where you are in the, uh, in the, how shall we put it, in your cultural position. And he refers to a slave morality and a master morality. So what's good? And, you know, like, a really easy example. What's evil for the antelope is lunch for the lion. Uh, what, a lion's supposed to be vegetarian? That's, you know, it's just the way nature works. So anyway, um, uh, Bloom comes from a tradition which uh, starts to object what was then creeping relativism coming into academia, and they launch a, um, a very strong uh, defense of Ah, what? Absolute truth, absolute uh, reality. There is a true reality, which, of course, there isn't. <laughs> if it were, what would it be? You know, uh, well, you know, isn't it what physics uh, describes? This table is real, right? Well, <laughs> what is it? Well, it's uh, round and brown. Or brown is a function of our rods and cones or our cones, and our retina, and round is a human concept. Uh, well, that is made out of wood. Well, what's wood? Well, wood's a bunch of chemicals. Well, what, chemicals. Chemicals are the way we break down uh, the elements, but it's a human concept. And, uh, well, table's something you can eat lunch from. Well, right now I'm not eating lunch. I'm sitting here with a bunch of microphones and headsets. Uh well, a table is something that's, uh, you sit out with a chair. <laughs> well, all these are human concepts, which are different in different cultures. We don't have chairs and tables in traditional Japanese home. Uh, they, you sit, you sit, you know, cross-legged on the floor. So, uh, Bloom is wrong in thinking that you can reestablish an absolutism. Uh, point is to do the relativism in a meaningful way. And uh, anyway, that's uh, the culture wars then, uh, where it was basically the absolutists against the Nietzschean relativists. And, uh, you know, again, Nietzschean relativism done right, which means, um, well, basically, bringing it up to today, uh, what happens is uh, we recognize that, yeah, this is uh, a modernist, materialist, scientific, Western point of view. Okay, right. Now, if we're going to uh, get somewhere, uh, we've got to say, that's a valid point of view, and it has uh, produced a lot of things like human liberty, despite uh, claims otherwise, uh, human liberty, scientific progress, affluence, 
uh, on and on and on. Okay. Uh, but there have been other points of view. Right. So what are some of those other points of view? Um, and what we find today, and that I, and I see among my colleagues, is the introduction of, um, oh, what we call it, uh, post-colonial thought. And uh, neo-colonial Marxism, or post-colonial, post-structuralist, post-colonial neo-Marxism. And it's basically how the West has screwed up other cultures, uh, which had previously been colonized. Well, I think it's uh, time to get over that, and for those cultures to assert themselves if that's what they want to do. And uh, but I find when I go to teach those other cultures, um, not accepted by my colleagues. Uh, my courses one by one have been dropped, and uh, I'm accused of uh, archetypalism and essentialism. But from my point of view, um, and I've for many years taught a course in non-Western architecture. And uh, so we looked at non-Western culture, and uh, I did a little diagram that I produce. And just reading from it, uh, if we look, if we start with the West, we see in Western Europe the emergence of the individual. And I associate each of these cultures with a mythology. You know, Oswald Spengler would say that a culture begins by laying down its epic poem and its temple form. So for the West, we have the Gothic cathedral and the uh, Arthurian romances, uh, particularly Percival, who uh, the knights act out of their own inner volition. The moral center is in the heart of each individual. We have a different notion of the individual, in Greece, ancient Greece, somewhat related. And we can take Prometheus, the uh, titan, as standing in for humans. And Prometheus steals from the gods fire and the arts and sciences to give to humans and is punished by Zeus. You, know, you idiot, they're going to overthrow us. <laughs> and uh, Prometheus is defiant, you know, when a delegation of gods come to him, he says, in effect, go tell Zeus, I spit in his face. Then we have the Middle East, uh, back to Mesopotamian cultures, and right up to the biblical traditions, uh, the centrality not of the individual, but of the society. And the society should put itself in a, well, the world and we were created by a creator who left instructions. And those instructions might be the patterns of the stars, and it might be in a series of books. And you don't say, um, you know, why do we do this or do that? <laughs> My mother used to say, well, you know, the reason you shouldn't eat selfish is they didn't have refrigeration in those days and it could go bad. Well, that's not quite right. Uh, that's not the reason 
not to mix two different fibers in your clothing, which is, by the way, punishable by stoning to death. Um, but these are totally arbitrary rules that are to be obeyed because they come from the Creator, not because they make sense to us. We don't judge the Creator. Uh, <laughs> as Sheldon says, <laughs> you don't uh, you don't screw the the roommate agreement. The roommate agreement screws you. <laughs> uh, I oh my God, you know, with my students. Most of them have seen, many of them have seen one Big Bang Theory, at least, right? So I can sort of talk about Sheldon's compulsiveness, but they, I don't know what, what they, they've, they've never seen a Seinfeld. Uh, they, uh, and then they haven't seen 2001. They, they don't, they haven't seen Star Wars. So I'm, um, I'm, uh, you know, at a loss how to deal with uh, these references to these. But anyway, um, uh, we got a roommate agreement with the creator, and we get the uh, think of the story of Job, who does everything right but is punished because the creator is arbitrary. Then in India. There's a notion of uh, this world is um, an illusion, and there's a transcendent oneness. And the object of our existence really should be to put ourselves in accord with that transcendent oneness or in touch with it or merge with it. And in China, the notion of the Tao the way of all things, and the flow of nature. The Tao is more than just nature. It's everything. But the flow that we see in nature is indicative of what we're going to, um, of, of the working of the Tao. And we should put ourselves in harmony with, in accord with that. If you look at um, uh, current Chinese President Xi's book, uh, there's a lot in there about uh, harmony. It's still a way of thought there. Well, my colleagues don't accept my uh, teaching this material. Uh, it's got to be replaced with post-colonialism, so who am I? But anyway, um, you know, I've recorded all of my, <laughs> my lectures on this material in my various courses on Western architecture. So when the Cultural Revolution comes, and I'm being interrogated. Uh, maybe they'll have dug up the uh, uh, dug up uh, these recordings if they survive the digital apocalypse. <laughs> Remember, uh, Carl Sagan created a little. Maybe it's a digital uh, recording, but he he created something that went with maybe it's one of the Voyagers out now beyond the orbits of the all the planets. And on it are pictures of a man and a woman and a diagram of our solar system and which planet we come from and some recordings of classical and pop music, like which everybody, of course, knew. How the hell are they going to play those recordings <laughs> if they don't have a Walkman? <laughs> yeah, hopefully they'll figure it out. But anyway, um, 
And along those lines is something that uh, I like to go over with my students. And when I get to when I'm talking about Buddhism, uh, just to describe uh, Buddhism, which I don't see how you can talk about uh, Chinese and Indian architecture without at first explaining Buddhism. And there's nothing makes sense in Buddhism unless you start with reincarnation. Uh, American Buddhists don't like to talk about that because, you know, it's, um, eh, do we believe in it or not? So I made this little chart. And uh, first is the cosmos. So the chart compares Buddhism, Christianity, and materialism. And it's interesting. My students are totally materialist in uh, class. None of them would reveal uh, that they're Christian. But then, occasionally I give them a questionnaire, and we go over this and talk to them. And maybe in a class of 15, one or two would claim to be materialists. So in their lives, they're not materialists, but in... uh, in school, they have to be. Um, I might have mentioned before, we are having a bull session one evening with some Caribbean students. And the, um, you know, a couple of the guys were really into Centuria uh, or Voodoo. And we were having them base their projects on this. And a woman spoke up and she said, she said she was Catholic. And she goes to Mass every day. And I thought for a moment, I said, have you ever told that to anybody at Pratt before? And she said, no. (laughs) God forbid students could be permitted to talk about their uh, core belief systems. But anyway, so in the cosmos, or the cosmos, for Buddhism, the cosmos is the interrelated consciousness of all beings. So, you know, what is absolute fundamental reality? Um, And Buddhism, it's the interrelated consciousness of all beings. Uh, For Christianity, the cosmos is God, human, and nature. So there are basically three things. You get angels, but put that aside. But there are three metaphysical essences. God, human, and nature. The cosmos is all of those. For materialism, cosmos is matter, energy, and the laws of physics, right? There's space, time, material, and the principles where are the laws of uh, physics whereby they move around and interrelate. Uh, consciousness is not there. Consciousness is not real, it is emergent. In other words, consciousness is what happens when um, neurons fire in our big brain. And then time, time is cute. So for Buddhism, time is infinite. Nothing changes. Change is illusion. So I recall... I studied for a while, Chungam Trumpa Rinpoche, and uh, I was, you know, in those days, back in the 60s, 
60s and early 70s. And there were a lot of people into uh, new consciousness. And everybody was talking about consciousness evolving. What the hell is consciousness evolving? From what to what? So I was, you know, Rinpoche got close to that issue. So I asked the question, uh, is Buddha consciousness today any different from Buddha consciousness in the past or at the time of Buddha? And he replied, is today any different from yesterday? <laughs> so in Buddhism, nothing changes. Uh, there's no creation. It always was. It always will be. There's change. Even that's an illusion. And Christianity, time is real. I think that's one of the major contributions of Christianity to uh, Western culture, or major influences. Uh, There there was a really big event (laughs) 5,000 years ago, namely creation. (laughs) It was another really big event 2,000 years ago, the birth of Christ, which totally changed the moral structure of the universe. Anybody born before uh, or died before Christ can't go to heaven, uh, because you have to be baptized into Christianity to go to heaven. And so they had these very nice purgatories for the great figures of the ancient world, but they don't go to heaven. And there's going to be another really big event, the second coming. It's all going to wrap up. So time is really real. Things really happen and change. And we have a kind of uh, cataclysmic notion of culture in our today. And I think uh, Christianity may be a contributor to that. And then in materialism, Time is difficult, but may be dependent on matter and energy. You know, one of the big questions in physics is, according to the laws of physics, um, everything is totally reversible. You can run the equations of physics backwards as well as forwards. But we notice that the teacup never falls up. (laughs) The shattered mirror never reassembles. And, um, you know, quantum physicists would say, well, it could. Uh, It's just improbable. Uh, Improbable to the extent that it would take a billion, 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 billion uh, lifespans of the universe for it to happen. But but that, you know, really? Um, So I don't really feel comfortable about time. In Buddhism... The soul is eternal, although I put soul in quotes because uh, they don't really refer to soul. They refer to the reincarnating monad. Uh, It's eternal and reincarnates, and its conditions dependent on good actions or karma. And death, uh, nirvana, in some systems is death without reincarnation, and sometimes that's uh, oblivion, and sometimes that's reuniting with uh, eternal oneness. And then in Christianity, very interesting, 
The soul makes a one-way trip. And the fate of the soul in, um, you know, in the afterlife, either eternity in hell or eternity by the side of God, is dependent on obedience and or the grace of God. Now, uh, where does the soul come from? Um, how does it, you know, it zaps into the person, either at conception or at birth or at some point along the way, uh, different traditions. But where does it come from? We know where it goes. But is there, I mean, are there a finite supply of these souls? Uh, what's it doing before it zaps into uh, the lifetime it's going to spend? And it's a one-way trip. It only does it once. And in materialism, there is no soul, just the firing of neurons. And then God or gods. That's interesting. In Buddhism, gods are metaphors and are subject to the same foibles and sufferings as humans. So Buddha is not a god. Buddha is a human being who figured it out, you know, who achieved enlightenment. We could, too. Uh, we're the same. We just haven't figured it out. But we metaphysically potentially could. Um, so why do they have all these gods in Buddhism and Hinduism? And in part, they're like the Greek gods. You know, uh, uh, Aphrodite's a metaphor for uh, erotic love. Zeus is a metaphor for the... Um, the uh, ruling father. Apollo is a metaphor for the priestly um, quality, etc. Um, so they're metaphors for human qualities, and they have their foibles, and they screw up, and they get into trouble. And in Buddhism, they can have real crashes in their uh, reincarnations. In Christianity, God is omnipotent, Although we're not sure what that means, and you know, classically we ask, oh yeah, well why did he create such a screwed up world? <laughs> and then what does the uh, wise ass six-year-old kid ask the priest? Right? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? <laughs> so there's some problems with omnipotence. And then in materialism, God is a delusion of those who are irrational. So now these are the cultures, and they have these fundamentally different belief systems, and they manifest them in um, metaphorically in their culture, in their art, their architecture, their cultural structure. Uh, one of my colleagues did a really terrific lecture once that I've uh, used ever since, in which he, uh, talking about the difference between the West and China, and he used a celebratory meal. He shows Thanksgiving. And, of course, you're going to show Thanksgiving. You can use the Norman Rockwell painting of the Thanksgiving dinner. And you look at a kind of uh, closeness to nature. Um, let's expand our view beyond the table in that Norman Rockwell painting. We have good panel walls. We have a, a Kentucky long rifle gun hanging over the mantelpiece with which we shot that turkey. Um, and the turkey's the dead bird. There are the wings. There's the legs sticking up. The skin is it's crispy, but it's still there. 
And uh, there's potatoes, they're just taken from the ground. The broccoli, it's just, that's how it grows. It's been cooked, but it, it looks like potato. The baked potatoes look like potatoes, and the broccoli looks like broccoli. Tables made out of uh, uh, pine wood. Uh, now, of course, the wood paneling on the wall is for mica. The uh, rifle is just for decoration. We bought the um, butterball turkey in the grocery store. Uh, but it, the dinner is symbolizing the American can-do-ness and closeness to nature. You know, the uh, before computers, they're going out and tinkering with the car and uh, building a hot rod, you know, and dropping a crate 350 uh, GM engine in there and bolting it to the transmission, putting a car together. Harder to do these days with all these precision parts. But it sort of makes of the American growing up uh, with that Thanksgiving meal uh, a kind of roll-up-the-sleeves can-do-ness. In a Chinese meal... We've got our table is lacquered, layers of black lacquer to hide the natural wood grain. Food is chopped up in small pieces that you can pick up with the chopsticks. They don't have a knife as part of their cutlery so that uh, you don't recognize the duck uh, or the um, whatever the chicken or whatever it is you're eating. And it's then covered in a sauce. And so the closer to nature, the less civilized in a way. And uh, uh, there was um, American playwright Arthur Miller was uh, a leftist. And he was one among the first Americans to go to China when China opened uh, some years ago. And they got a tour of a tractor factory. And there was a whole warehouse full of attractors and says, what are those? He says, well, those are defective. Uh, so what's the problem? And he says, well, they don't steer. And he says, well, didn't anybody test one coming off the assembly line before you made all these? He says, no, we're engineers. We wouldn't drive a tractor. We don't do that. Uh, so, you know, a very different attitude toward who you are and what you are as a human being gets embedded in and then culturally transmitted through uh, art, architecture, meals, how we cook, etc. Anyway, um, we no longer have that approach at my school. We can't talk about these things due to our current state of our culture wars. And I'm going to have on a um, sometime in the future, hopefully, an editor of where does my paperwork here? Quillette. So Quillette's an online journal. It's only a couple of years old, but it has quickly risen to um, major importance. And there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of online journalism, right? I mean, uh, even our uh, paper magazines are online. 
New Yorker, New York Review of Books. Uh, and I haven't run into paywalls yet. I'm not sure how they work. But when I see a reference to a, uh, an article in New Yorker or New Yorker Review of Books, I can usually just go online and, and get it. So uh, <clears throat> and then there's, you know, Slade and Salon. Then there's the dicier online uh, journals that are knee-deep in clickbait, like Huffington Post and Vice and uh, BuzzFeed. But Quillette, uh, I think there are ads in here, but uh, it's not clickbait. You know, it's filled with serious journalism. And I'm just looking at current one, sexualization in gaming, advocacy, and overcorrection. So what's going on with uh, in uh, online gaming? How intersexualism betrays the world's Muslim women. So we're in a we're in a world now. I don't want to say too much about this to avoid getting in trouble, <laughs> but also not my field of expertise. But when I have writers who uh, who do know about it, talk about it, we can do that. But um, I notice in uh, uh, the feminist that I see in my school and uh, that I encounter online <clears throat> are very supportive of Islam, very critical of Islamophobia. But I hear them talking uh, a lot about condition of women in Islam. So what's going on here? How do we discuss that? Like the campus thought police, Smith College police chief, Daniel Hecht was put on administrative leave after becoming an object of campus hate. Chief Hecht's crime was not was liking, not writing tweets that fall outside dot dot dot. So speak of clickbait. We gotta click that one now. Uh characterizing the left doesn't benefit the intellectual dark web. Uh, what I saw at Middlebury College. So Middlebury College is uh, is in trouble, and uh, uh, that's something we'll have some guests on talking about shortly. But anyway, those are some thoughts about the culture war today and the culture war then. And I think it's definitely you got to read Alan Bloom's Closing American Mind. I disagree with most of it, but it's a brilliant presentation of the argument. So with that, uh, how about we wind up and we'll see you back here next week at PRN.FN Visionaries. John LaBelle signing off. <laughs>